Section 5 of Volume 1C of History of England from the Invasion of Julius Caesar to the Revolution of 1688. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Dustin Tuttle. History of England from the Invasion of Julius Caesar to the Revolution of 1688 by david hume volume one c section five chapter twenty five part three some years after the birth of this child warwick returned to tournay where perkin his son did not long remain but by different accidents was carried from place to place and his birth and fortunes became thereby unknown and difficult to be traced by the most diligent inquiry the variety of his adventures had happily favored the natural versatility and sagacity of his genius, and he seemed to be a youth perfectly fitted to act any part, or assume any character. In this light he had been represented to the Duchess of Burgundy, who, struck with the concurrence of so many circumstances suited to her purpose, desired to be made acquainted with the man, on whom she already began to ground her hopes of success. She found him to exceed her most sanguine expectations. So comely did he appear in his person, so graceful in his air, so courtly in his address, so full of docility and good sense in his behavior and conversation. The lessons necessary to be taught him in order to his personating the Duke of York were soon learned by a youth of such quick apprehension. But as the season seemed not then favorable for their enterprise, Margaret, in order the better to conceal him, sent him under the care of Lady Brampton into Portugal where he remained a year unknown to all the world. The war which was then ready to break out between France and England seemed to afford a proper opportunity for the discovery of this new phenomenon, and Ireland, which still retained its attachments to the House of York, was chosen as the proper place for his first appearance. He landed at Cork, and immediately assuming the name of Richard Plantagenet, drew to him partisans among that credulous people. He wrote letters to the earls of Desmond and Kildare, inviting them to join his party. He dispersed everywhere the strange intelligence of his escape from the cruelty of his uncle Richard, and men, fond of everything new and wonderful, began to make him the general subject of their discourse, and even the object of their favor. The news soon reached France, and Charles, prompted by the secret solicitations of the Duchess of Burgundy, and the intrigues of one Fryon, a secretary of Henry's, who had deserted his service, sent Perkin an invitation to repair to him at Paris. He received him with all the marks of regard due to the Duke of York, settled on him a handsome pension, assigned him magnificent lodgings, and in order to provide at once for his dignity and security, gave him a guard for his person, of which Lord Consagral accepted the office of captain. The French courtiers readily embraced a fiction which their sovereign thought it his interest to adopt. Perkin, both by his deportment and personal qualities, supported the prepossession which was spread abroad of his royal pedigree, and the whole kingdom was full of the accomplishments, as well as the singular adventures and misfortunes of the young Plantagenet. Wonders of this nature are commonly augmented at a distance. From France the admiration and credulity diffused themselves into England. Sir George Neville, Sir John Taylor, and above a hundred gentlemen more came to Paris in order to offer their services to the supposed Duke of York and to share his fortunes, and the impostor had now the appearance of a court attending him, and began to entertain the hopes of final success in his undertakings. 
when peace was concluded between france and england at estapel henry applied to have perkin put into his hands but charles resolute not to betray a young man of whatever birth whom he had invited into his kingdom would agree only to dismiss him the pretended richard retired to the duchess of burgundy and craving her protection and assistance offered to lay before her all the proofs of that birth to which he laid claim the princess affected ignorance of his pretensions even put on the appearance of distrust and having as she said been already deceived by simnel she was determined never again to be seduced by any impostor she desired before all the world to be instructed in his reasons for assuming the name which he bore seemed to examine every circumstance with the most scrupulous nicety put many particular questions to him affected astonishment at his answers and at last after long and severe scrutiny burst out into joy and admiration at his wonderful deliverance embraced him as her nephew the true image of edward the sole heir of the plantagenets and the legitimate successor to the english throne she immediately assigned him an equipage suited to his pretended birth appointed him a guard of thirty halberdiers engaged every one to pay court to him and on all occasions honored him with the appellation of the white rose of england the flemings moved by the authority which margaret both from her rank and personal character enjoyed among them readily adopted the fiction of perkins royal descent no surmise of his true birth was as yet heard of little contradiction was made to the prevailing opinion and the english from their great communication with the low countries were every day more and more prepossessed in favor of the impostor it was not the populace alone of england that gave credit to perkins pretensions men of the highest birth and quality disgusted at henry's government by which they found the nobility depressed began to turn their eyes towards the new claimant and some of them even entered into a correspondence with him lord fitzwater sir simon montfort sir thomas thwaites betrayed their inclination towards him sir william stanley himself lord chamberlain who had been so active in raising henry to the throne moved either by blind credulity or restless ambition entertained the project of a revolt in favor of his enemy sir robert clifford and william barley were still more open in their measures they went over to flanders were introduced by the duchess of burgundy to the acquaintance of perkin and made him a tender of their services clifford wrote back to england that he knew perfectly the person of richard duke of york that this young man was undoubtedly that prince himself and that no circumstance of his story was exposed to the least difficulty such positive intelligence conveyed by a person of rank and character was sufficient with many to put the matter beyond question and excited the attention and wonder even of the most indifferent the whole nation was held in suspense a regular conspiracy was formed against the king's authority and a correspondence settled between the malcontents in flanders and those in england the king was informed of all these particulars but agreeably to his character which was both cautious and resolute he proceeded deliberately though steadily in counterworking the projects of his enemies his first object was to ascertain the death of the real duke of york and to confirm the opinion that had always prevailed with regard to that event five persons had been employed by richard in the murder of his nephews or could give evidence with regard to it sir james tyrrell to whom he had committed the government of the tower for that purpose and who had seen the dead princes forrest dighton and slater who perpetrated the crime and the priest who buried the bodies tyrrell and dighton alone were alive 
and they agreed in the same story. But as the priest was dead, and as the bodies were supposed to have been removed by Richard's orders from the place where they were first interred, and could not now be found, it was not in Henry's power to put the fact, so much as he wished, beyond all doubt and controversy. He met at first with more difficulty, but was in the end more successful in detecting who this wonderful person was that thus boldly advanced pretensions to his crown. He dispersed his spies all over Flanders and England. He engaged many to pretend that they had embraced Perkins' party. He directed them to insinuate themselves into the confidence of the young man's friends. In proportion, as they conveyed intelligence of any conspirator, he bribed his retainers, his domestic servants, nay, sometimes his confessor, and by these means traced up some other confederate. Clifford himself he engaged, by the hope of rewards and pardon, to betray the secrets committed to him. The more trust he gave to any of his spies, the higher resentment did he feign against them. Some of them he even caused to be publicly anathematized, in order the better to procure them the confidence of his enemies. And in the issue, the whole plan of the conspiracy was clearly laid before him, and the pedigree, adventures, life and conversation of the pretended Duke of York. This latter part of the story was immediately published for the satisfaction of the nation, the conspirators he reserved for a slower and sure vengeance. Meanwhile, he remonstrated with the Archduke Philip on account of the countenance and protection which was afforded in his dominions to so infamous an impostor. Contrary to treaties subsisting between the sovereigns and to the mutual amity which had so long been maintained by the subjects of both states, Margaret had interest enough to get his application rejected, on pretense that Philip had no authority over the demands of the Duchess Dowager. And the king, in resentment of this injury, cut off all commerce with the Low Countries, banished the Flemings, and recalled his own subjects from these provinces. Philip retaliated by like edicts. But Henry knew that so mutinous a people as the Flemings would not long bear, in compliance with the humors of their prince, to be deprived of the beneficial branch of commerce which they carried on with England. He had in his power to inflict more effectual punishment on his domestic enemies, and when his projects were sufficiently matured, he failed not to make them feel the effects of his resentment. Almost in the same instant he arrested Fitzwater, Montfort, and Thwaites, together with William Daubney, Robert Ratliff, Thomas Cresnor, and Thomas Astwood. All these were arraigned, convicted, and condemned for high treason, and adhering and promising aid to Perkin. Mountford, Ratcliffe, and Daubney were immediately executed. Fitzwater was sent over to Calais, and detained in custody. But being detected in practicing on his keeper for an escape, he soon after underwent the same fate. The rest were pardoned, together with William Worsley, Dean of St. Paul's, and some others, who had been accused and examined, but not brought to public trial. Greater and more solemn preparations were deemed requisite for the trial of Stanley, Lord Chamberlain, whose authority in the nation, whose domestic connections with the king, as well as his former services, seemed to secure him against any accusation or punishment. Clifford was directed to come over privately to England and to throw himself at the king's feet while he sat in council, craving pardon for past offenses, and offering to atone for them by any services which should be required of him. Henry then told him that the best proof he could give of penitence, and the only service he could now render him, was the full confession of his guilt, and the discovery of all his accomplices, however distinguished by rank or character. Encouraged by this exhortation, 
Clifford accused Stanley, then present, as his chief abettor, and offered to lay before the council the full proof of his guilt. Stanley himself could not discover more surprise than was affected by Henry on the occasion. He received the intelligence as absolutely false and incredible, that a man to whom he was in a great measure beholden for his crown, and even for his life, a man to whom, by every honor and favor, he had endeavored to express his gratitude, whose brother, the Earl of Derby, was his own father-in-law, to whom he had even committed the trust of his person, by creating him Lord Chamberlain, that this man, enjoying his full confidence and affection, not actuated by any motive of discontent or apprehension, should engage in a conspiracy against him. Clifford was therefore exhorted to weigh well the consequences of his accusation, but as he persisted in the same positive asservations, Stanley was committed to custody, and was soon after examined before the council. He denied not the guilt imputed to him by Clifford. He did not even endeavor much to extenuate it. Whether he thought that a frank and open confession would serve as an atonement, or trusted to his present connections and his former services for pardon and security. But princes are often apt to regard great services as a ground of jealousy, especially if accompanied with a craving and restless disposition in the person who has performed them. The general discontent also, and the mutinous humor of the people, seemed to require some great example of severity and as Stanley was one of the most opulent subjects in the kingdom, being possessed of above three thousand pounds a year in land, and forty thousand marks in plate and money, besides other property of great value, the prospect of so rich a forfeiture was deemed no small motive for Henry's proceeding to extremities against him. After six weeks' delay, which was interposed in order to show that the king was restrained by doubts and scruples, the prisoner was brought to his trial, condemned, and presently after beheaded. Historians are not agreed with regard to the crime which was proved against him. The general report is that he should have said in confidence to Clifford that if he were sure the young man who appeared in Flanders was really son to King Edward, he never would bear arms against him. The sentiment might disgust Henry, as implying a preference of the House of York to that of Lancaster, but could scarcely be the ground, even in those arbitrary times, of a sentence of high treason against Stanley. It is more probable, therefore, as is asserted by some historians, that he had expressly engaged to assist Perkin, and had actually sent him some supply of money. The fate of Stanley made great impression on the kingdom, and struck all the partisans of Perkin with the deepest dismay. From Clifford's desertion, they found all their secrets were betrayed, and as it appeared that Stanley, while he seemed to be living in the greatest confidence with the king, had been continually surrounded by spies, who reported and registered every action in which he was engaged, nay, every word which fell from him, a general distrust took place, and all mutual confidence was destroyed, even among intimate friends and acquaintance. The jealous and severe temper of the king, together with his great reputation for sagacity and penetration, kept men in awe, and quelled not only the movements of sedition, but the very murmurs of faction libels however crept out against henry's person and administration and being greedily propagated by every secret art showed that there still remained among the people a considerable root of discontent which wanted only a proper opportunity to discover itself but henry continued more intent on increasing the terrors of his people than on gaining their affections 
trusting to the great success which attended him in all his enterprises, he gave every day more and more a loose to his rapacious temper, and employed the arts of perverted law and justice in order to exact fines and compositions from his people. Sir William Capel, alderman of London, was condemned on some penal statutes to pay the sum of two thousand seven hundred and forty-three pounds, and was obliged to compound for sixteen hundred and fifteen. This was the first noted case of the kind, but it became a precedent which prepared the way for many others. The management, indeed, of these arts of chicanery was the great secret of the king's administration. While he depressed the nobility, he exalted and honored and caressed the lawyers, and by that means both bestowed authority on the laws and was enabled, whenever he pleased, to pervert them to his own advantage. His government was oppressive, but it was so much the less burdensome, as, by his extending royal authority and curbing the nobles, he became in reality the sole oppressor in his kingdom. As Perkin found that the king's authority daily gained ground among the people, and that his own pretensions were becoming obsolete, he resolved to attempt something which might revive the hopes and expectations of his partisans. Having collected a band of outlaws, pirates, robbers, and necessitous persons of all nations, to the number of six hundred men, he put to sea, with a resolution of making a descent in England, and of exciting the common people to arms, since all his correspondence with the nobility was cut off by Henry's vigilance and severity. Information being brought him that the king had made a progress to the north, he cast anchor on the coast of Kent, and sent some of his retainers ashore, who invited the country to join him. The gentlemen of Kent assembled some troops to oppose him, but they purposed to do more essential service than by repelling the invasion. They carried the semblance of friendship to Perkin, and invited him to come himself ashore, in order to take the command over them. But the wary youth, observing that they had more order and regularity in their movements than could be supposed in new levied forces who had taken arms against established authority, refused to entrust himself into their hands. And the Kentish troops, despairing of success in their stratagem, fell upon such of his retainers as were already landed, and besides some whom they slew, they took a hundred and fifty prisoners. These were tried and condemned, and all of them executed by orders from the king, who was resolved to use no lenity towards men of such desperate fortunes. This year a parliament was summoned in England, and another in Ireland, and some remarkable laws were passed in both countries. The English Parliament enacted that no person who should by arms or otherwise assist the king for the time being should ever afterwards, either by course of law or act of Parliament, be attainted for such an instance of obedience. This statute might be exposed to some censure, as favorable to usurpers. Were there any precise rule which always, even during the most factious times, could determine the true successor and render every one inexcusable who did not submit to him? But as the titles of princes are then the great subject of dispute, and each party pleads topics in its own favor, it seems but equitable to secure those who act in support of public tranquillity, an object at all times of undoubted benefit and importance. Henry, conscious of his disputed title, promoted this law, in order to secure his partisans against all events. But as he had himself observed a contrary practice with regard to Richard's adherents, he had reason to apprehend that, during the violence which usually ensues on public convulsions, his example, rather than his law, would, in case of a new revolution, be followed by his enemies. 
and the attempt to bind the legislature itself by prescribing rules to future parliaments was contradictory to the plainest principles of political government. This parliament also passed an act empowering the king to levy, by course of law, all the sums which any person had agreed to pay by way of benevolence, a statute by which that arbitrary method of taxation was indirectly authorized and justified. The king's authority appeared equally prevalent and uncontrolled in Ireland. Sir Edward Poynings had been sent over to that country, with an intention of quelling the partisans of the House of York, and of reducing the natives to subjection. He was not supported by forces sufficient for that enterprise. The Irish, by flying into their woods and morasses and mountains, for some time eluded his efforts, but Poynings summoned a parliament at Dublin, where he was more successful. He passed that memorable statute which still bears his name, and which establishes the authority of the English government in Ireland. By this statute, all the former laws of England were made to be of force in Ireland, and no bill can be introduced into the Irish Parliament unless it previously received the sanction of the Council of England. This latter clause seems calculated for ensuring the dominion of the English, but was really granted at the desire of the Irish Commons, who intended, by that means, to secure themselves from the tyranny of their lords, particularly of such lieutenants or deputies as were of Irish birth. While Henry's authority was thus established throughout his dominions, and general tranquillity prevailed, the whole continent was thrown into combustion by the French invasion of Italy, and by the rapid success which attended Charles in that rash and ill-concerted enterprise. The Italians, who had entirely lost the use of arms, and who, in the midst of continual wars, had become every day more unwarlike, were astonished to meet an enemy that had made the field of battle, not a pompous tournament, but a scene of blood and sought, at the hazard of their own lives, the death of their enemy. Their effeminate troops were dispersed everywhere on the approach of the French army. Their best fortified cities opened their gates. Kingdoms and states were in an instant overturned, and through the whole length of Italy, which the French penetrated without resistance, they seemed rather to be taking quarters in their own country than making conquest over an enemy. The maxims which the Italians during that age followed in negotiations were as ill-calculated to support their states, as the habits to which they were addicted in war. A treacherous, deceitful, and inconsistent system of politics prevailed, and even those small remains of fidelity and honor, which were preserved in the councils of the other European princes, were ridiculed in Italy as proofs of ignorance and rusticity. Ludovico, Duke of Milan, who invited the French to invade Naples, had never desired or expected their success and was the first that felt terror from the prosperous issue of those projects which he himself had concerted. By his intrigues a league was formed among several potentates to oppose the progress of Charles's conquest and secure their own independency. This league was composed of Ludovico himself, the Pope, Maximilian, King of the Romans, Ferdinand of Spain, and the Republic of Venice. Henry too entered into the Confederacy, but was not put to any expense or trouble in consequence of his engagements. The King of France, terrified by so powerful a combination, retired from Naples with the greater part of his army, and returned to France. The forces which he left in his new conquest were, partly by the revolt of the inhabitants, partly by the invasion of the Spaniards, soon after subdued, and the whole kingdom of Naples suddenly returned to its allegiance under Ferdinand, son of Alfonso, who had been suddenly expelled by the eruption of the French. Ferdinand died soon after, and left his uncle Frederick in full possession of the throne. 
End of section 5, chapter 25, part 3. Recording by Dustin Tuttle.